88.1 WKNC Raleigh. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Thank you for joining us. This is Eye on the Triangle. I'm John Boyer. Today is September 7, 2010. The time is 6.59 here at WKNC in Raleigh. Tonight's program is jam-packed. We have a lot on the way. Starting out with an interview with Greg Lowenhagen at the Hopscotch Music Festival. After that... Weather, a restaurant review with our new restaurant critic Mark Herring, Wolfpacker of the Week with Chris Wimberly of Night Sound, Community Canvas, our correspondent Jacob Downey was out at the Nasher Museum in Durham. We have sports with Tyler and Taylor, as always, talking about the win over WCU this weekend. Sound bites, Chris and Tommy ventured out into the community, upcoming events, and of course, Chris's show, outro, and credits, and gardening minute, if we have time for it. We've got to get started, but if you have feedback for us tonight, Twitter, at WKNCEOT or at WKNC88.1. Email publicaffairs at WKNC.org, Facebook, Eye on the Triangle, and we have a new voicemail feedback line, 919-628-0869. That's 919-628-0869. Not the same as the request line, but let's go ahead and jump right into it. Joining us now is our general manager, Tom Anderson, talking to Greg Lowenhagen, Let's get going with Hopscotch. Yeah, tonight's VIP is taking a break from his, I'm sure, undoubtedly packed schedule in the week of Hopscotch Music Festival. Um, Greg Lowenhagen. Um, Greg's a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. He's the festival's creative director and formerly an account exec at Independent Weekly. What do you do over there now? Write your own job description, basically? Yeah, yeah. I write. Uh, they give me blank checks. Right. No, I, uh, I'm the now the marketing manager at the Independent, and I'm also the uh, director of Hopscotch. So, first of all, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure to have you on again. Um, and you've been on a couple times before, um, you and or Grayson talking hopscotch. But today, obviously, we're going to talk about the festival, but it's mainly um, focused on you because you're the VIP. So, jump right into it. How long have you worked at The Independent, and what did you start off there doing? I started at The Independent in February of 2009, so I'd say 18 months ago. And I started as... Uh, a sales rep. So I was uh, selling advertising, print, and online, just an account executive handling uh, various accounts for the paper. And like I said, just recently, they have uh, I've been promoted to be the marketing manager at The Independent, and uh, we're looking to you know uh, extend our brand all over the triangle, doing a lot of different things in the upcoming year, one of which we just uh, put out uh, two weeks ago, which some of you might see uh, out and about in the triangle now, which is a thing called Annual Manual. It's a new publication that's a glossy for us, and it's the first time we've done that. It's a yearly publication that's really great. And then, uh, you know, I've also been pretty busy with this festival. What's what's in the yearly publication, the glossy? The Annual Manual was intended, uh, you know, a lot of other cities do it real well. There's a great one out in Portland. Uh, Boston does a real nice one. And uh, it's essentially for people that it's targeted for people that have moved to the Triangle in the last three to five years, mm-hmm. which we know that's, that's a, a lot of people that's now. A lot of people. So, uh, it, it really breaks down the triangle by neighborhood, by, uh, you know, Chapel Hill, Carborough, Durham, Raleigh, Wake Forest, Cary, all these different areas. And it focuses on, uh, you know, eat and drink, going out, places to go, places to shop, uh, hike and bike trails. Basically, it's sort of a, just a, a like a guide, uh, neat, to the neat. triangle that is, uh, is really, pretty well done it's amber nimics who uh used to work in the news and observer came over and did it for us and we uh we really love it so you you worked at the independent since february 09 what did you do before the indie um i, I know you you taught right I, I was a high school teacher for a number of years when i got first got out of school I, I went to school in chapel hill i actually uh moved to barcelona spain for a year and then i uh moved to austin texas 
and I taught high school for a number of years. I, I taught at a small, fairly progressive high school there as a private school, uh, taught history, and then I took a job at Dell. And then I moved to Chicago and uh, was only in Chicago for a year. And then I returned to the Triangle uh, just about the time I started the Indy. Awesome. So um, how did the initial ideal for Hopscotch come about? Um, who had it and uh, when was it voiced? Well, I, I think it was originally voiced at one of two places. It was either in Grayson's car one day when he drove me. Uh, I think my car was broken down or for some reason he had to give me a ride to Durham. And I had just started the paper. He and I didn't know each other real well. And I told him that I thought the Triangle, particularly Raleigh, the city itself was ready for a larger scale music festival that might be a little more national and could combine the great stuff that's been going on here musically for decades. And, uh, you know, it was more of just two friends sort of pass- passively talking about an idea. And he, he was on board with it. He liked it. But, of course, uh, if the Independent was going to be involved, we needed to talk to Steve Shule, who's the owner of the paper, and Sue Watson, who's the publisher. Was was Grayson the music editor at that point? Yes, Grayson was the music editor. This was probably, I'm going to guess, last April, um, and uh, maybe a little earlier than that, but probably around last April. And then, I, you know, I also talked to my boss, who's the ad director, the longtime ad director at the paper, is a um, woman named Gloria Mock, um, and shout out to Gloria out there, and her husband, Mouse, of course, who owns the cave, uh, the staple in Chapel Hill. So I was kicking about the idea with them as well. They came to Raleigh one weekend. We hung out. We walked around. Mouse even said, I think it would be perfect. And uh, the city's ready. And we just formulated a little plan. I presented it to Steve and Sue and Gloria over a lunch right here off of Glenwood Avenue last June. And they said, let's do it. So then we've been working on it uh, pretty feverishly so since then. They were on board immediately. Was there any skepticism? There actually wasn't much skepticism. Uh, Steve, it turns out, uh, serendipitously, was actually online all the time, checking out uh, music festivals himself. And he was kind of letting the idea germinate on his own at home, and he just hadn't expressed it. And simultaneously, I was thinking the same thing. And when I brought it up to him, we uh, we just knew that uh, it was something that we wanted to do. And so it didn't take much of it. It wasn't much of a hard sell, if yeah. you will. Are there, are there different formulas to, uh, like, you said he researched different music festivals. Did he find, is there one general formula for putting one of these things on, you know, in terms of getting bands paid, you know, having having ticket distribution, stuff like that, I guess, all no, fast. Well, is, I, is it- I, well, when you talk about festivals, I think they come in all shapes and sizes. So they're, they're, they're really different. Uh, you know, when we talk about, you talk about a big American music festivals, you go back to Woodstock, you know, it's out in the, it's out in the field. There's, uh, you know, several stages. It, that, of course, that model is, you know, echoed by uh, Bonnaroo, which is super successful. You know, Austin City Limits down in Austin, Lollapalooza, which now is annual in Chicago. Now that's found its home base there. So those large scale, big field festivals are very successful. And, uh, those people do a great job throwing them on the different production companies that do that. And then there's that, uh, there's another model, which we followed a little bit more of, which is a South by Southwest, which happens every March in Austin. There's uh music fest Northwest up in Portland, and those incorporate the bars and clubs that are already in place. Right. So our idea is we wanted to, rather than find a chunk of land and put up four stages and let people go out uh, in a field for a weekend. We really wanted to take advantage of what, again, I, I wanted the festival to be urban and, uh, you know, downtown focused. That was one of my main keys. Right. And so we've, we've, we've been very lucky to get the venues that already exist here to, to get, in, get on board. You know, everyone from the Lincoln on down to Five Star and everywhere in between size-wise and 
sort of genre wise has gotten involved and we were able uh, to tie them together and, and that's how we came up with Hopscotch. Cool. So you're the creative director of the festival. Um, what is your job? What was your job objective from start to finish? Did it change at all? Was it always basically one mission statement or did you, or did your directive change the, the whole thing? Well, it, it's a good question. I think it changes with what you're doing with the job. I mean, the, the objective from the beginning has been simple to have a second hopscotch. I mean, the, the one goal we have is to not make this a one-off. Hey, that was great. Remember when that happened September 9th through 11th, 2010. This is something that I think all of us at the paper, particularly Grayson, Steve, Sue, Gloria, myself, uh, believe can be annual. We think it can be uh, something that grows with the city. We think it can become a destination event. We already have a lot of people coming in town for this one this weekend. And I think it's something that right off the bat, the objective was real simple. It was to make hopscotch annual. At least that was my main goal. Now that I, I think we're going to be able to at least have a second one, of course, we've got to have a great weekend coming up here. But you know, provided everything goes smoothly this weekend, we'll start planning for next year, uh, at the end of this month already. Wow. So, um, and that's kind of so, but in terms of objectives along the way, of course, the first objectives were to get the clubs on yeah, board like- and to secure the city plaza. And then the next things were to, uh, book the bands. You know, mm-hmm. and then we had to figure out how we're going to pay the bands and what type of tickets we were going to sell. So that's all you basically spearheading those decisions as? Yes. Cool. Uh, yeah, generally. I mean, there's, again, a small committee that is involved with that. Paul Seiler, who's a guy who plays in Birds of Avalon and uh, runs a bar in town Kings. called Kings, he, he helped us out uh, tremendously in terms of the booking. You know, I've got uh, four interns that work really hard, uh, unpaid, and that are, you know, pouring their hearts out trying to get this thing pulled off. So there's a lot of people that are involved, but in terms of the major key decisions, uh, yeah, those were generally done by Grace and myself, uh, Steve, and uh, that small team at the paper deciding, you know, all of those things. What do you think uh, was the hardest part of your job? I guess I guess that could go back to what was the hardest part of the whole festival in particular, but or in general, but particularly what was what was your hardest job? I think I think there's some uniquely first year problems that come up that may not happen again. So I think the hardest part right off the bat was getting people to believe in us. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, getting the city on board, getting the clubs on board, getting uh bands on board. All of those things to me seem like first year problems provided this weekend goes smoothly. So all of the challenges from the get go were, you know, for instance, I'm now 14 months later, I'm on the radio talking about Hopscotch, and I think that the people that are listening, far more of them know about Hopscotch than they did 14 months ago. So these problems of PR and name branding and, you know, getting the word out and getting people to believe in you, those are all the problems you face at the beginning, and I think they're uniquely first year. So Mm -hmm. now there's going to be problems year over year and, and challenges, if you will, but the main challenge was... Uh, when you say, yeah, I, I direct hopscotch, someone going, what the hell is hopscotch? You know, and I think that uh, less and less people are saying that and more and more people are knowing what it is. And, and now I think people are uh, excited for it. Um, would you have done anything differently? I probably would have done a few things differently. I can't think of any one thing that stands out at the moment. Uh, you know, you might want to get back to me on Monday. About right. that because right. you know I'm not really sure. Too early to ask that question. Yeah, it's a little too early. I mean, right now we're on very little sleep, and we've been working sort of around the clock. I haven't really left my office before 3 a.m. for five weeks, so I'm I can't even tell. I mean, I would here's what I would do differently. I would have figured out to, how to staff it differently. Right. Uh, right off the bat, we're, we're shorthanded, and uh, we won't be next year. So that's that's something that I've learned right away. Uh, but you know, it's there's been a ton of learning that's gone on. It's been an incredible process. 
But right now, I, I wouldn't say I'd change any one thing. Were there any uh, pleasant surprises along the way? Oh yeah, there's been plenty. I mean, uh, you know, what was getting, the biggest one? Is, does any is there any pleasant surprise that stands out in your mind? Pleasant surprise. Um, I think we've got some uh, some pleasant surprises coming up. I think you know one one recently was just the North Carolina Symphony reaching out to us and wanting to partner for Sunday night. Mm-hmm. So now we've added a new component for Sunday night, which is free. It's open to families, open to anybody in the city or the triangle that wants to come in. We were able to book the opening band, uh, you know, for that their big summer end of summer concert, and I think that's a great thing that when people like that start to reach out to you. It, it's really, um, it's really sort of rewarding, and yeah. uh, it's great. I mean, it feels great. So, you know, big surprises. I don't know. We've got a few coming up. Maybe one on Friday in City Plaza that nobody knows about yet, uh, and we'll keep that a surprise. And uh, right. Um. Okay. So, so what's what's next for you and the independent? Um. I know you said you wanted to do hopscotch next year, provided this one goes off well or smooth enough. Um. But is it just going to be a like reverse culture shock for you in this post post hopscotch world? Yeah, it's going to be difficult to get back. I'm going to take a little time off first, and then I think we're going to reevaluate. For the paper itself, there's a whole lot of things coming up. We uh, again, we just dropped the annual manual a couple of weeks ago. We're going to start um, researching and looking at a lot of different events in the triangle that we think we could help grow, that we like, you know, and maybe by attaching our name and helping out with the sponsorship side of things, that those events could become more viable or a little bit bigger. Uh, and the paper is going to continue to come out every Wednesday. The website's going to continue to grow and hopscotch is going to do the same. So, I mean, it's going to be by October 1st, we'll be back to business as usual. And I think there's awesome. a lot of great things to look for from the Indian in the next year. Awesome. So we got only like two minutes. I'm, tr- I'm going to try to get to the, uh, listener and tweeter questions. Um, Norman wants to know who from public enemy will be there. Do you know? Of the Public Enemy crew, who's going to be? I guess that may, would be a cra- uh, question for Grayson. No, no, that's a question for me. Everybody from Public Enemy is going to be there. It'll be a full band show. There's nobody missing. Um, you know, that's just this how it is. I mean, uh, Terminator X is no longer with the group, but that's been for several years now. Right, so, right. Uh, you know, Flav, Chuck, it's going to be uh, a really special night in City Plaza on Saturday. I think if uh, anybody out there listening knows Public Enemy's records, and of course they're touring right now behind uh, the 20th anniversary of the Fear of a Black Planet record, which is one of the most uh, legendary hip-hop records ever made. They also are probably even more legendary for their live show. So in terms of live hip-hop, which can kind of lack at times these days, right. there's nothing uh, nothing you can quite see like a live P.E. show in terms of the hip-hop. So, so P.E., everyone's going to be there except Terminator X. Um, how smooth, Charlie Horst wants to know, how smooth you expect the hopscotching i.e. going from one venue to the next to be? Um. Well, I think it's going to be really smooth. One thing that we, I mean, there's a variety of components that would take way too long to discuss on air, but the major one is being that we didn't oversell the festival. Some of you may have heard that we did sell out of our three-day wristbands this week online. That still does not mean we've sold out of City Plaza. You can still come down and enjoy a Friday or City uh, City Plaza show. Uh, both of them have plenty of tickets available at hopscotchmusicfest.com, and you can walk up on Friday and Saturday and buy tickets at the corner of Davie and Fayetteville Street at our box office. But in terms of the hopscotching between the clubs, it's going to be crowded. But the other, uh, but we have a great uh, volunteer staff that's been trained thoroughly on this. We've got indie employees who'll be working the door, and the bars are ready for it. So we don't think there's going to be much problem at all. Cool. And um, someone else wants to know: Are there plans to tweet or use uh, social media when clubs are near capacity? Yeah, one thing I did want to say, we do have an iPhone app that's coming out. It's actually online now that you can download, but it only operates with the OS 4 for Apple. So we're going to have the update hopefully tomorrow for everybody else. 
you can use the app. That's going to be a great thing to make your own schedule. And in terms of, I imagine, the tweeting and social media, Facebooking and things, we'll do our fair share. We're going to be pretty busy. At the same time, that's what the public does. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I expect people to say, hey, Berkeley's door is full or, you know, the set we just saw at King's was incredible. And I think that stuff will, and, you know, there'll be a hashtag, I'm sure, on Twitter. Right. And uh, everybody will be, uh, you know, you know texting and tweeting and uh, the whole night away so all right anything any closing thoughts greg no i just can't wait for thursday and i can't awesome. wait for uh monday too well yeah really, thank you very much for coming in again greg lowenhagen from the independent weekly and hopscotch music festival this week's on the triangle uh vip thanks a lot for coming in thanks so much for having me and thanks you uh tom as well for conducting that interview and thanks to everybody who tweeted i wish we had time for more But I'm looking forward to this weekend, and don't go anywhere. There's more Eye on the Triangle on the way after the break. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Hi, this is meteorologist Brandon Boucher with the three-day forecast. On Monday, it will be sunny with clouds building throughout the afternoon, with a high around 93. There will also be a slight chance of rain throughout the afternoon. For Wednesday night, your low will drop around to 65, and skies will be mostly cloudy with a few more showers around. On Thursday, it will be sunny with a high about 90. Your nighttime lows will drop to around 61 degrees under clear skies. For Friday, high will be about 86 under partly cloudy skies. This has been Brandon Boucher with NC State Broadcast Meteorology. Sounds like a great forecast. Thank you. And uh, welcome back to Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.17. I'm John Boyer, and thank you very much for listening. And also, thanks for all of you out there who are tweeting. And if you haven't gotten in on it yet, the uh, place to go is WKNC EOT or WKNC 88.1. We're also on Facebook, Eye on the Triangle, and public affairs at WKNC.org. Now, this is exciting. We have a new segment, Can't Say That Every Day, joined by Mark Herring. He is here to give us a restaurant review. Take it away, Mark. Thank you. Afghan Cuisine. I had no idea what it, what it entailed before I entered Village Kebab. It was either curiosity or complete ignorance that lured me to this restaurant. Honestly, most connotations I have of Afghanistan are not the most pleasant. But as a food enthusiast, as well as a believer in humanism, I hold food to be a way to transcend and bridge cultural, political, and human gaps. Not only was I surprised after my meal at Village Kebab, all my preconceived notions of Afghan culture dissipated as I wobbled my full and satisfied stomach out the door. The layout of Village Kebab is very casual. The front counter is full of various side dishes like stewed spinach, stewed garbanzos, roasted pumpkin, and other Central Asian delicacies. Peering into the window, I caught a glimpse, or peering into the kitchen rather, I caught a glimpse of a cook turning kebab over the grill. Rule of thumb, Roasted meat on a stick is usually a good thing. The air was impregnated with the sweet, smoky aroma of meat marinated in cumin, as well as, a f- as, well as fresh baked naan, which is South Asian flatbread. All of these were encouraging signs that alleviated my skepticism. As I ordered my food, I started to talk to the owner of the store, and his warm smile and recurrent use of my friend helped ease my mood. How may I help you, my friend? Is that all, my friend? Needless to say, the service there was great. I ordered a kebab platter with rice, a side of, a side of stewed garbanzos, naan, and a side of sambosas. First came out the sambosas. With such proximity to the Indian subcontinent, the, in, the Indian Pakistani samosa made its way west of the Hindu Kush into Afghanistan, changing the name into sambosa. So sambosas, or samosas, are filled pastries with ground meat and onion, and they're lightly fried. 
This food exemplifies how countries located along crossroads, the Silk Road in Afghanistan's case, how they absorb different influences that pass through. As I had iterated earlier, village kebab is extremely casual. There is no pretension whatsoever. Everything is served on styrofoam plates and eaten with disposable cutlery. Ten minutes later, the kebab platter appeared out of the kitchen. The rice was generously garnished with yogurt sauce, scented with cilantro. The kebab in the end was delicious and satisfying. It was a lamb kebab, too. It was great. The chickpeas melted in my mouth. Ironically, I had no clue what I was to expect before I got my food. But afterwards, I was moved by the serendipitous meal. Or, in simpler terms, it hit the spot. The restaurant is located on 805 West P Street, just across the road from the P Street Market. Expect to pay within 8 to 12 bucks, which will go a long way. The, pro- the generous proportions are extremely enticing, so bring an appetite. Moreover, Village Kebab is open late at night, so it may be a good idea to stop by after a few drinks. Ironically, it seems that Middle Eastern cuisine, especially kebab, is perhaps the best drunk food, even though alcohol is forbidden in Muslim countries. Village Kebab not only serves good food, but is redefining the impression of Afghan culture. With an American flag tacked into the wall next to the bright, bucolic pictures of the old country, it seems like the owner, Muhammad, is making a statement that there is compatibility between Afghan and Afghanistan and the United States, or at least that Afghanistan and the United States are not conflicting entities. However, the statement isn't complete without a helping of food, and it, according to Afghan customs regarding hospitality, I'm sure Muhammad would be more than happy to share. Thank you. Well, you had me at lamb kebab. That sounded great. Thanks, Mark. And uh, also, disclaimer, the opinions expressed are those of the author, not WKNC Student Media or NCSU. The author was not paid or otherwise compensated for his review. WKNC does not endorse any specific establishment it reviews and takes no responsibility for what you do with the information therein. Let's keep going with Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.22. Up next, Wolfpacker of the Week. Tommy interviewed Chris Wimberly of Night Sound Studios. Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. A spotlight on those who go above and beyond. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Tom Anderson. This week's Wolfpacker of the Week is Chris Wimberly. Chris graduated from State in 2000 and is now the owner and producer at Night Sound Studios in Carborough. I was able to catch up with him in Carborough last week to hear about how he got where he is, his progressive philosophy on the recording industry, and Night Sound Studios' latest project. Okay, so Chris, I guess just tell me your story, beginning with your college years. I don't want to hear everything from birth. Oh, Okay, because I was about to, I was going to go all the way. Yeah, okay. Um, well, when I uh, went to NC State, I spent half my time trying to graduate as an English major, and then I realized, okay, uh, there's this new, brand new major opening up, uh, which was for uh, arts applications and music. And I'd already taken a lot of classes with uh, Dr. Rodney Washka, who I consider sort of a mentor. And at the same time, uh, while I was uh, finishing up degree, I was uh, doing apprenticeship at a recording studio and I was being uh, apprenticed by Tom Mobat, who came from Chicago Track Studios. And uh, between, I think, Dr. Washka and Tom Mobat, I was sort of like, I got two sides of uh, the academic side and then the, and then the everyday, right. like working with artists and, you know, in the trenches kind of side of things for being a recording engineer and a producer. You may not want to date yourself, but when was this? Oh, I would never want to date myself. I would only want to uh, maybe, uh, as Tom Waits said once, uh, you know, maybe take myself out very briefly for, for a nice meal. 
maybe uh, take myself home later that night, but not. I mean, not nothing kinky. I wouldn't tie myself up or anything, you know. But I probably always wake up in the morning feel ashamed, feeling ashamed, you know. When did you when, bid a dude to NC State? Oh, I graduated in two thousand. So, uh, and I had, was already working here at Night Sound, which at the time was called Lloyd Street Studios. And then when Lloyd Street went out of business, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to take over with my client base and sort of start building the place from then. So it's been about 10 years wow. um, that I've been working here at Night Sound. So you went from your apprenticeship straight to Night Sound? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to start working with a lot of really uh, great artists back then that sort of allowed for me to have sort of enough. Uh, of a client base and enough great people that I was working with so that I could just sort of move into a building. And then since then, Night Sound has become sort of a social services for musicians, a kind of a, a building which is and a, and a business which uh, is kind of put together sort of like a cross between a co-op and a law firm mm -hmm. of contracted workers, like great engineers like Dave Campbell and uh, Taylor Herbert and Tim Fenwick and uh, Patrick Jones, who's uh, working with... Uh, guys like the embarrassing fruits and butterflies and i could just name drop all day but right i'll have to stop somewhere so what what's you, you touched on it briefly but what's the history of night sound well the history of night sound i'd love to know the history back before night sound was here because i think for several years it was uh another studio called lloyd street studios where they recorded uh, uh bands like uh southern culture on the skids like one of the first incarnations of southern cultures on the, on the skids and you know, you've had like members of Squirrel Nut Zippers in here. You've had a whole lot of history to this building in terms of music. So there's a lot of great mojo in here. I, I think that's a good way to maybe lead into talking about the compilation because over the years, there's sort of this almost this kind of this hotel owner feeling to being a mm -hmm. uh, a studio owner uh, and, a, and a producer of uh, mostly independent artists and small label artists. Is you know, you get this feeling like people are kind of going in and out, and you realize that a lot of these great folks in this area don't necessarily know each other and there's this strange fractured assembly line of how music is made and and released and gets out there to people that that would love to hear it that sort of begged me and uh, Erica Libero who's the the project manager on the compilation to put something together that could bring a lot of these different artists you know closer together to work together and so uh, 15 different uh, bands in this area were selected and they each randomly drew each other's names out of a hat and they uh, had to cover one another's songs. So it's kind of a cool way to sort of like make a lot of connections between label boundaries and, you know, sort of social scene boundaries and, uh, and, and really sort of connect the area together and sort of more yeah. of a gestalt. How long have you had that idea? Where did that idea come from? Or is it just, just well, all of a sudden click one day? Idea. Erica Libero, um, had the idea to have bands cover each other. We knew we wanted to do a compilation of some kind. I think it was last spring, I think we had the idea. Um, I mean, this studio, uh, the, the way that I believe, and this may, might get back to your first question, but I don't believe a studio can run the way that it used to run in the 80s, and I don't even believe that it can work the way it used to work in the 90s. And how's that? Um, well, if you're going to have a building, if you're going to be like a commercial recording studio like Night Sound, you know, you, you can't afford to just charge people by the hour until they run out of money. I mean, you have to make the place a community resource. You have to connect the place. It can't just be this, like, people come in, people come out. We definitely want to be a community resource, you know. Even if it's as much a lifestyle decision as it is a business decision, there's so much great stuff around here. We want to be a useful part of that assembly line. We want to help people connect to the audiences they want to connect to. I mean, I could obviously go on and on and be all over the place about, you know, my philosophies and that kind of thing. Uh, because the studio can't be 
just a place where people come in and record by the hour, you know, where you have like, you know, generally, historically, studio guys, engineers and such have been fairly reclusive people, you know, not to do any disservice to my peers in the area, but usually it's like you go into somebody's basement and record something with somebody and, you know, and they look like they've never been out side of the basement and that kind of right. thing. And and, uh, and what we really wanted to do is be able to do something that made Night Sound a useful part of the community. And, and that's, I think, where the compilation comes in. And we have a lot of... We try to do all this, as much of that stuff as possible because, really, we're lucky enough to work with like a team of people that are really into music in this area. Musical Chairs is the name of the compilation. That's right, uh, Musical Chairs. How is the physical production going to be handled? Who's who's pressing it? Well, that's like a decision that we have to get to I guess, actually in the next week or so, right? Um, right. We have an October 5th uh, release show at the Cat's Cradle in Sunny Carver, North Carolina. And we're just about done with the, the mixing and everything like that for the compilation. And uh, we're not really sure which company we're going to use to press it right now, but um, it's hopefully going to be a company that we would suggest to other people, and I wish I could name a name right now, but mm-hmm. don't have it in mind. Don't mean to <laughs> incise it. No, that's fine. Um, so the physical production uh, aspect of it aside, is Night Sound acting like a record label with this? Uh Whereas we are putting out this compilation, um, we want it to just be sort of a different kind of production reel um, in terms of us showing off what we can do, but also showing off what the community can do in terms of how it connects to itself. And I think the ultimate goal would be to get people who previously might not know very much about local music to realize that there's all this amazing, accessible local music in this area. And uh, But no, we're not a record label. Uh, we... Uh, we we decided it's not good enough to just record things and send people out into the world and that kind of thing. And we like to consider ourselves like social services for musicians. And we always have to do things within the budget of an artist because if they if if somebody comes in and has a budget, I mean, recording something is an investment. Like you know, recording a, a, a professional sounding like EP or record or you know even just a single is like such a uh, an investment that you have to sit down with somebody from the very get-go and say, okay, here's the budget you're working with, here's how we can do this. But, you know, I know, imagine a lot of record labels would, would do that, but uh, we find ourselves in the position that position with independent artists. But we're not a record label because we get to work with this diversity of genres and, and artists that, you know, I, I don't think that would be indicative of being a record label. Um, we, whereas we are starting this micro-marketing company uh, in the in the same building as Night Sound, it, it's also a separate business, and it, it's not you know part of Night Sound becoming a record label or anything like that. We we want to kind of be Switzerland about this. We want to sort of be this this neutral, useful uh, business that that can help any small label, any independent artist. Um, because like I said, like the the recording studio business models from the '80s and '90s, they're just not a not a real thing anymore. Like people, mm-hmm. I think, tend to try to build on business models from the previous decade, and and we're trying to be this decade or next decade's sort of business model for a recording studio. What would you say, I guess, is the hardest part of of the whole process from the original idea to I guess the hardest part may not even have come yet, but what to date has been the hardest part of the whole thing? I mean, the whole thing has been a challenge, but actually, the the whole thing has been a lot of fun. I, I can't really say. If there's been a hardest part necessarily, uh, the whole thing has been a lot of fun. What has been the most satisfying part then? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's answer the positive side of that question. <laughs> um, I'd say getting to work with some of these folks for the first time 
like I was totally destroying it. Um, they were a lot of fun to work with. Uh, had a lot of fun. A soft company, uh, Missy Things. She's also in the Love Language, and uh, I had a lot of fun with all the bands. You know, Lizzie Ross. We sort of made it a team sport recording all these different bands. Um, but uh, uh, so I guess your answer is just the whole thing. Yeah, I guess I can't really put my finger on one one thing to say that it was the most fun. I think hearing the performances. I think you know, just helping people get good sounds and, and hearing great performances has been the most fun. I mean, the whole part, the whole process has been being more excited about the next thing that we have to do, you know, and so that's really sort of fueled us forward with a lot of this. So this is quite the project. Do you, have, you, have you given any thought to what's next for Night Sound, just being more Switzerland? <laughs> well, no, I mean, we, we definitely want to take a stance on, <laughs> I don't want to diss Switzerland here, right? But, uh, we, we definitely want to try to do this kind of thing uh, every year. We, we've decided that this has been rewarding, and wow. uh, we we feel like you know uh, doing this every year. Maybe it won't next year be a compilation where bands are covering each other, but we want to do some kind of community uh, building, uh, uh, listener grabbing compilation for this area. It's obviously something you've iterated a lot. Is that it's a community-based project, you know, it's local bands, it's a local recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, where did the funding come from here? Uh, that's a great question. I'm excited to talk about that because, really, uh, the whole community funded this project. Uh, we used Kickstarter.com, which is kind of a great way to raise funds for uh, an artistic project. Um, all the engineers involved donated their time. Uh, basically, nobody made any money off this. Uh, there were uh, the studio donated uh, a lot of time, and uh, the uh, a lot of the contributors uh, were venues uh, like uh, Scott Connery from Open Eye Cafe was a big contributor. Um, we had uh, families of the musicians involved were contributors. Each of the bands involved paid a share uh, of the cost, and uh, and uh, I think like I think a good two thirds of the project has been funded by. Uh, just different people who are somehow invested in the musical community around here, you know, sort of throwing in, and uh, and uh, the rest was uh, sort of fronted by Night Sound, the other third, I think. It's definitely the kind of thing that I feel is going to pay off in terms of like you know, uh, WKNC, for example. I mean, <laughs> we, we consider you guys a, a oh, contributor shucks. to this project, really getting it out there. I think that more and more everybody's starting to realize that they're all fighting the same fight, which is. You know, making uh, people care about. Yeah, them. making people give a damn about the. Really, just make them art. aware because because if they're aware of it and they really don't like it, fine. Yeah, but I think it's a good way to say it. If you're never aware of it, then you can't say. But getting people aware of their own corner of the world, I think, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great corner of the world to be in. It's amazing. I mean, uh, I think that, you know, back in the '90s, there was this sentiment that uh, oh, the next Kurt Cobain is right down the street. Well, I think you've got stuff that they used to say Chapel Hill or the Triangle area was the next Seattle you know and that's not you know obviously that didn't pan out because Chapel Hill didn't want that really right but uh, but it turned out that uh, there are a lot of places all over the country uh, that are these little meccas of amazing music and I think the Triangle area Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill uh, Hills I gotta include Hillsborough too and, and Pittsburgh and places like that um Greensboro, like there's a there's an amazing wealth of talented people, and having done this for a little over ten years now, I have to say that there is more talent I think in this area right now than there's there's ever been, 
So absolutely for those people out there listening who, you know, I I should start a record label or you know, uh, do it. You know, now is a great time. You know, uh, or as people saying to themselves, you know, I should make music for myself and other people. It's a great time to do that because people right now more than in the last I say 15 years are really receptive to hearing new music and connecting with something right in their corner of the world again talking with Chris Wimberly our Wolfpack of the Week owner producer at Night Sound Studios who will be putting out Musical Chairs the local music compilation slate to come out October 5th is the release date Cat's Cradle full information about this is available online you can look us up on Facebook you can go to Night Sound Musical Chairs on Facebook, and that's probably the best place to go right now to get information. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, should I give an email address? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can get in touch with us at info at nightsound.com. That's N-I-G-H-T-S-O-U-N-D.com. Awesome. Well, Chris, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks a lot. WKNC 88.1. This is I on the Triangle, and I'm Chris Chaffee. And uh, we had a slight addendum to that story. Uh, Tommy Anderson... Yeah, just a really quick addendum. I had said in the end of that interview that the release date was going to be October 5th at Cat's Cradle. I spoke to Chris today, actually, on the phone, and he said that um, the, uh, the, though there will be several release dates, um, probably one of which at Cat's Cradle, um, that October 5th date is not firm. So that could possibly be the case, but it's not firm at the moment. So uh, like I gave at the end of the interview, um, if you want any information, any uh, updates about the Night Sound uh, compilation musical chairs um, you can just search Facebook night sound musical chairs it's probably going to be the only result so that's it alright thank you uh, Thomas for that now we gotta go ahead and go to Community Canvas with uh, Jacob Downey Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle your local arts news you're listening to Eye on the Triangle's Community Canvas on WKNC 88.1 I'm Jacob Downey and I'm visiting Duke University's National Museum of Art for their contemporary art exhibition The Record the show, which opened on September 2nd and will be running through February 6, 2011, has brought together 41 international artists of mixed mediums in order to create pieces who use vinyl records as their focus. This fusion of outsider artists, contemporary art headliners, and up-and-comers getting their very first show within museum walls has produced sound work, sculptures, paintings, performance pieces, drawings, and photographs in order to marry nostalgia, escapism, and metaphor to stimulate thoughts about the relationship between culture and music. Immediately, jazz music playing from 45s on the normally controlled and muted PA system in the Nash's lobby, and William Cordova's vinyl monolith of more than 3,000 recovered records, known as Greatest Hits, Casting Its Shadow on You, the instant you open the door, it's obvious that even in the Nash's groundbreaking catalog of contemporary art exhibitions that has included Barclay, Hendrix, The Birth of Cool, you're about to experience something special. In order to glean better insight about the exhibition, I spoke with Jessica Woolley, the Associate Curator of Education at the National Museum. And Raleigh-based producer and painter David McConnell was kind enough to talk about his installation at the record, Phonosymphonic Sun. Woolley began by discussing the origin of the exhibition. This exhibition has been a labor of love over the last four years on the part of our curator, Trevor Schoenmaker. And he has looked all across the globe for the artists who are included in the record, I've heard that he looked at as many as a thousand different art images and um, interacted with as many as 300 pieces of art in choosing what would go into the collection. He had a real focus on making sure that it is an international representation in terms of the artist, as well as looking at all different medium and not having it be heavy or specific to any one particular 
art style. Although Shoemaker's search for creators was globe-spanning, he was fortuitous enough to discover David McConnell in his own area code. McConnell talks about the experience. Uh, I had an exhibition at a small gallery in Raleigh a few years ago called Bickett Gallery. Trevor Shoemaker, the curator of contemporary art at the Nasher, uh, heard about the exhibition and, and saw my work. And we met and uh, he invited me to do a piece for the record. And this piece, it turns out, is the first installation to greet guests when they enter the record's main exhibit hall. It's a sound sculpture entitled Phonosymphonic Sun. Will you describe the piece a little bit? It's a six-channel sound installation. It's basically a studio album that I've been recording over the last three years, and it's played back uh, through the speakers of these vintage turntables that I deconstructed and rebuilt vertically uh, around the uh, surrounding the viewer. Each one of these speakers plays a separate instrument or sound at any given moment. And uh, what you have is 18 movements or songs uh, that compile the score. And it's about 36 minutes long. And then there's a visual component? Yeah, it's essentially a sculpture as well, a sound sculpture. And um, I did paint the turntables as a color field painting as well. In addition to shaping the physical sculpture and composing the symphonic piece, did you play the six instruments that are heard on each of the six turntables in the room? Yeah, yeah, um, except that I, probably I played more like over 50 instruments on the piece, um, and I just kind of split them up into six channels over the course of the 36 minutes, as well as um, some samples, some sound artifacts from the environment that I've taken, such as like birds and voicemail messages and things like that. I also played vinyl by hand, you know, without turning on the record player. I would play records and sample them like that to give them uh, their own unique texture. Over the course of the piece, you can uh, sort of pick out some of the instruments and some of the, the sound artifacts, but there are also some instruments that are kind of more esoteric that have been collecting over the years, some things that are even you know over 100 years old that you don't really hear a lot of these days. Ruli's been hands-on with the exhibition since the preview week in late August. How's the reaction been so far? It's been fantastic seeing people's reaction to the exhibition and to the art itself. The fact that there are so many artists represented. Um, I think everybody has something that they love in the collection. Um, everybody gets really excited about several of the artists, but some of the ones that I've seen lots of people being drawn to, we have an outsider artist, Mingering Mike, out of DC, who's created his own fantasy world in terms of the records he's produced and the songs, their lyrics, as well as album titles, um, and people are really captured by what he's created and the world that he's imagined. I also think the original life-size Polaroid montage done by David Byrne, a lot of people simply recognize from the Talking Heads album that that was the cover art for and seeing it in person and seeing how it was created and what went into the physical object really captures their imaginations there are works by Christian Mark Lang, who a lot of people are familiar with. He's been working in records and art for 30 years now, combining the two. And then we also have a sculpture that was created for the Nasher, commissioned by the museum by artist Satch Hoyt. And it's a 16-foot canoe made out of red 45 records out in our great hall that I constantly see people standing and underneath and gazing up at. It seems to really draw people into it. Back to McConnell, as a creator, were your expectations met? 
oh, it's exceeded my expectations. It's amazing, you know, for people who haven't been to the Nasher or experienced some of the uh, contemporary art exhibitions there. Um, you know, we're re- really quite lucky to have an, an exhibition of this scale here in the Triangle. It's it's on the level, if you know, if not better than. Um, what's going on in uh, contemporary museums in New York and in Chicago and L.A. And it's the the scope of this uh, exhibition is pretty amazing. I, I would emphasize that there's just uh, a really diverse range of work in the show, um, it, you know, and stuff that was made by um, really famous artists, you know, going back 50 years to um, some some more underground artists that you've never heard of so it's really it's really neat to see the combination and see the involvement of these blue chip artists and then these artists that are showing for the first time in a museum between the importance of proximity space of your piece at the national museum of arts exhibition the record and the normal harmonization that goes with it of having it come out of six turntables we can't justly replicate your piece but can you provide a suggestion of the work right yeah, this is just a small sample of the uh, installation. This is actually a, a piece of the uh, the first movement called American Bird Song. And uh, in this piece, what you'll hear is the chaotic cracks and pops uh, from a piece of vinyl being played. After a few moments, you'll hear a, a beat being derived from those cracks and pops. And uh, what I did was I, I found kind of a pattern and then I looped it so that you actually have a, a drum beat um, coming from the sound of the vinyl spinning. And then I augmented that beat with a bass drum and a snare. And then in between the hits of the bass drum and the snare, you'll hear a bird that I sampled uh, in my backyard, one of many birds that I sampled who actually was in time with this this beat. And uh, he uh, he kind of fills the, the, the space of the hi-hat of, of the drum beat. Sounds fantastic to me. Do you think the bird would be proud of his contribution to your piece, Phonosymphonic Sun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a pretty arrogant bird to begin with, but yeah, he would definitely like how it turned out, I'm sure. <laughs> 
Jessica Roy, as one of the National Museum of Art's education curators, what do you hope that students get from the record? Well, for some of them, it's going to be simple knowledge of records, you know, knowing what a record is, what it looks like, how it works, how we play one on a record player. Um, It's honestly going to be that simple in terms of explaining records to, you know, a second or third grader who's simply never experienced or interacted with a record before. Beyond that, I really hope that the students are inspired by the creativity that's in this exhibition. I think seeing all of the different works and the different perspectives that the artists have taken on this same topic is really exciting. And I hope that it really gets them thinking creatively about the music in their own lives and about some of the day-to-day objects that they interact with and what's as important to them as records clearly have been to these artists. If you're planning to head out to the record at Durham's National Museum of Art, keep in mind there's no admission on Thursday evenings thanks to a donation from the Independent Weekly and SunTrust. And you want to budget plenty of time. The cover-to-cover piece alone is easy to get lost in. That's where 10 artists have provided crates of vinyl to listen to based not on their ideal wish list, but on what was available at their local new and used record stores and the visual stimulation that their records provided. And be sure to bring a friend so you can have someone to talk to about pieces like Dave Mueller's Top 10 Records Self-Portraits and you can watch the horror in their face as Tayo Kimira finds new and amusing ways to destroy vinyl. The Nasher's website, nasher.duke.edu, is a good resource to track the special events associated with the record, including a Super Trump concert on September 16th and a vinyl listening party and barbecue hosted by Zavario Simmons on September 19th. David McConnell will be participating in a panel discussion out of the Nasher on October 21st. The record will be on display Tuesdays through Sunday until February 6th at the Nasher Museum out in Durham on Duke's campus. This has been Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. Okay, and it's time for sports here on Eye on the Triangle. I'm joined, as always, by Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber. And from it's different from the last time you guys were here. We finally have some results to talk about when it comes to football. Of course, some good results for NC State. We sure do. Uh, Western may have not been a huge opponent, so beating them is not not the end of the world or anything tremendous, but certainly a 48-7 win, regardless of the opponent, is a huge feat and a great way to start the season with a wide margin of victory. Didn't get off to the greatest start. Western actually struck first. They, it was 7 nothing at one point. State was down, but reeled off the next 48 in a row. Russell Wilson had a field day, 21-31, 306 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Pretty incredible that this isn't the first time he's done that, regardless of the opponent. Remarkable that, that this is makes a handful of times he's had those kind of nights where 300-plus yards, handful of touchdowns, no picks. Really was impressed with him, especially considering he went a long, long time away from football from the last practice before the last game of, the, of last season to the first practice of this year. It was quite a while he was focused on baseball. So for him to come off and shake off whatever rust there was, there wasn't much rust, he looked sharp. Yeah, I mean, he definitely didn't show any type of rustiness whatsoever when he came in. I mean, just, I mean, from the second he got there, just pristine passes all over the place. But I tell you what, the one big thing that you could see was uh, TJ Graham had a huge night. I think he had like around nine catches. Six catches, 96 yards, two TDs, a a career night for TJ Graham. That was huge. Those were Mm -hmm. nice words out of my mouth. Oh, yeah, and I mean, I think that's going to be a huge, huge offensive threat that they could have. I mean, if you could put T.J. Graham working him out of the slot with Jarvis Williams and Owen Spencer on the outside, George Bryan working the middle of the field, the weapons and just the points could be coming in a bunches. And then we'll, there's a good chance we see some of these 48-point 
uh, offensive performances like we have against Western. I mean, it, with the offense that is so just, I mean, it can just score from any point. It's so explosive that, I mean, who I, knows what they could do. I think we were in for a treat watching us on the offensive side of the ball, even if Graham and the other guys were going to have a quiet year. If TJ Graham has any more performances like this and if – Daryl Davis steps up. I mean, this was a dangerous passing attack with three receivers, with five of them or more. Stephen Howard, you never know what we're going to see out of him. You never know what we're going to see out of the other tight end besides George Bryan. I mean, this might be a this might go from a prolific passing attack to a record-setting one if those guys can contribute can continue to contribute because it's hard enough guarding three top-flight receivers. If T.J. Graham steps up to that level and you've got you know your third or fourth best secondary guy on T.J. Graham, he's getting beat. Russell's the hardest thing Russell's going to have to do is pick which open receiver to hit because it, it's going to be a it's going to be a lot of fun to watch if these uh, receivers outside of the ones you hear about in Jarvis Owen and George if these other guys can get open it, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Well, it sounds like having those options that's a good problem to have. Looking down the schedule and particularly with UCF, what do you see that uh, encourages you? And also looking at Saturday's game, were there any trouble spots? I mean, yeah, we definitely haven't seen what. State is. I mean, the Western game, yeah, you, you, I mean, first game of the season, yeah, but we don't know. I mean, they're nowhere near the competition. UCF is, I mean, three years removed from winning the Conference USA title. They're a tough team. I think I've seen a couple people have picked them to win the Conference mm-hmm. USA. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely gonna, we're definitely going to know a lot more after this game. But, I mean, going into it, I think we still have a shot. I mean, with the offense, like we said, I mean, we're sitting here preaching about it. I mean, with this offense, we're going to be able to play in any game. It doesn't matter. This is one of the best offenses in the nation. And I think a lot of people agree. But what we're going to have to see is what that defense does. And they look suspect sometimes um, in the last game. I mean, Nate Irving, first game back, did not have the quiet of the game I think you would expect from Nate Irving, especially from the Nate Irving of two years ago. I think he struggled some switching over to middle linebacker. From what I saw, he looked a little timid at times. Really not that kind of instinct, instinctual guy that we've come to know from uh, Nate. And I think it's just some of those first-game jitters being back. I mean, he's missed a whole year of football and, I mean, didn't record a single tackle in the game. But, I mean, I think, I think he'll be better. But yeah, that is one trouble spot that you have to look at. Taylor, I'll take the bright side of the defense, though. So you say... We gave up a touchdown the first drive. Nate Irving didn't make a tackle, and what was the final score? They scored seven points. All that being said, oh yeah, they had a, so, I think a hundred and it was it was less than a hundred and ten yards of offense after the first eighty-two yard drive. So the so, defense really settled in and shut stuff down without a big contribution from Nate. So on the optimistic side of that, is if they played well with a quiet a quiet night from him, what what are they going to do to an opposing offense when he's back to form, if if and when he gets back to that form? Oh, yeah, I mean, and definitely. And then with that also, I mean, defensive line didn't look too terrible. I mean, they did a lot of rotation, especially on the ends between Michael Levin, Jeff Reese-Camp, David Akinney, and uh, Audie Augustine. Audie Augustine. But, I mean, Lemon looked awesome. He looked like the beast that he's shown. And if they can just get any type of consistent play from any of those guys, whether it's one person or all four of them, and just get that type of play, control that line of scrimmage, I mean, this could be a defense that's greatly improved from last season. Uh, also, another note, talk, we talked about the offense earlier. We talked exclusively about the passing game, but the running game looked good. Dean Haynes and Mustafa Green both enjoyed solid debuts. Both got a touchdown. I believe Green, Green had 69 yards and um, – Good to see the running game go for over 100 yards on a night when the passing game gets 300. You expect the running game to be quiet, but a solid rushing effort. And, you know, a lot of running backs have had some have had some tough times in their debuts, even guys that ended up with good careers. So for these guys to have a good debut like that, the future looks bright, and it'll be really interesting to see 
what they do in their first game against a more respectable opponent. Central Florida is kind of known for their defense, known for being physical. Uh, the going will be a little rougher for those guys, but it'll, it'll be good to see what they can do in Orlando Saturday night. And hopefully not a shutout, but certainly all I'm hearing so far is pretty encouraging, especially looking at some of the past few years. Now, of course, the only game in town isn't just NC State. We've also got uh, UNC and their result against LSU, obviously not what they wanted. How much do you think the suspensions played into that outcome? I was I was blown away by UNC's effort, and I am the first and the loudest to criticize them every time I get a chance to not have the guys they had and to make that game as close as they did against a team like LSU on the road. They weren't at LSU Stadium, but they weren't at home either. I was blown away to see them come that close to winning. Two drop touchdowns from about five or ten yards away in the last minute. Really, really impressed by the Tar Heels. Much as I hate to say that, uh, you got to take your hat off to them for the effort. I mean, Missing, I think probably ten of the ten of their top fifteen best players were done, and they were down twenty or whatever it was. I believe they were down thirty to ten, and they came back and very, very nearly won that game. Yeah, it was definitely a gutsy effort by the heels. I mean, it shows a lot what uh, T.J. Yates has come. I mean, he looked a lot better than he has ever at Carolina, and proven some of those doubters that have been screaming for uh, Brent Renner for a while now. So, I mean, I think Yates played well. But I also think, I mean, yes, Carolina, I mean, you can't take it away. Losing that many players, I mean, coming, making that game even close was, I mean, an unbelievable feat in itself. But I think it also is a weaker LSU team than we've and let's, seen. Let's let's note past. that LSU turned it over five times before we're pulling for the Tar Heels too much. Yeah. You know, a team I mean, turns it over five times, you're gonna it's probably gonna be close. You're yeah. not gonna get blown out when the other team hands the ball over to you five times. So De- let's definitely, keep that in mind. Definitely not one of Les Miles' best teams that he has there. Not a lot of offensive weapons, not a, that kind of LSU defense that you've come to think about from him. So I think that plays a part into it in as well. But I mean you can't take anything away from Carolina. Well, we wish state luck on Saturday. We'll have you guys back next week to talk more about the outcome against Central Florida as well as the Carolina Panthers getting their season underway. Uh, Thank you, guys. Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber from Technician. WKNC 88.1. This is Chris Chaffee here for Eye on the Triangle. We have a very special guest this week for Soundbites, uh, Lance Newsman and Leeds McCoolick. Yes, McAllister, Mahulahan, they both uh, they helped us out this week for sound bites, so we are going to go ahead and do that now. Um, and when we get back, we're going to have a very short community calendar. By the way, you're listening to 88.1 WKNC. Sound bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around NC State and the rest of the Triangle. On this week's Sound Bites, I, Lance Newsman, and I, Leeds McCallahan, went out to uncover the truth behind the Labor Day weekend. Flu homework, boredom and drawing were just some of the things we encountered on our walk through campus. Now here's the story straight from the horse's mouth. Matt Brokaw. And can you tell us briefly about your weekend? My weekend wasn't the, as as I'd planned. Um, I work every day this weekend, except for today. Today's my first day to get out and actually skate a little bit. And also, like I was saying, I was sick with some kind of flu virus that's been going around. But, you know, I made the best of it, so it was a nice weekend. I mean, overall, you always got to be positive and that stuff, so I guess, uh, yeah, I deserve my Labor Day weekend. It was nice. I worked hard for this day, you know? Finally got here and be able to come out and skate, have a little fun with my friends. My name is Kelsey Mills. I'm a chemical engineering major, and this weekend I did my homework, basically. That's about it. Can you tell us a little about uh, what kind of homework you had? Uh, organic chemistry and logic. Which logic class? 201? 201, yeah. With Auerbach? Yes, it is. It's really interesting. Can you tell us about the class? 
<laughs> um, it's like it evaluates like sentence structures and like the logical interpretation of them. I don't know, but I, it's just really interesting. All right, Leeds McCallahan here for Eye on the Triangle. I'm in Quarter, North Carolina, and I'm with Katie, a freshman in math. On Thursday, I went to a, a house show off of Oberlin, and the rest of the weekend, I just relaxed and caught up on some studying I really needed to do all along. Yeah, so it was a uh, it was a well spent Labor Day studying. It's kind of boring. So, what subject uh, have you spent your Labor Day? Cultural anthropology. Uh, Dr. Green, do you enjoy her class? It's all right. Leeds, uh, Leeds McCallahan here once again in the quarter of North Carolina. I'm with Mandy. Mandy, uh, do you go to state? Yeah. What's your uh, year in major? <laughs> Graphic design. You, uh, what what year are you? Sophomore. Sophomore. Yeah. So, uh, Mandy, sophomore in graphic design. Um, did you do anything interesting this Labor Day weekend? Um, I went to the Denmark One party downtown. That was pretty fun. Did you dance? Yes. Yeah, there was. Would one say that you danced the night away? Um, you could probably say that, yeah. Or the the early morning, the wee hours of the morning. Um, Denmark is a, that's the record label founded by uh, Logan Sales, yeah. right? State student, current state student. Yeah. Do you know Logan? Yeah, he's uh, he's in graphic design as well. So, but he's an upperclassman. My name is Belle Farish. I'm a graduate student for architecture and. This Labor Day weekend, I have studied for a test. I have drawn for a architectural drawing class. I have also participated in two birthday parties. I went to the openings of Kings, which wasn't that cool, but that's okay. It'll get better. Can you talk a little about how you felt about Kings emotionally? I was a little disappointed. Uh, Neptune's was very overcrowded, so you had to wait in line for that. And because of the building capacity, which I think is a little restrictive, quite honestly, you can definitely fit more people in there without too much of a panic when a fire occurs, but it is in a basement, so I understand completely. Uh, But you did have to pay $5 on top of a membership fee to go into Kings, which... Understandably, it is the new place to go, but still kind of sucks. Can you talk a little about the uh, entertainment that evening? The entertainment? At King's. At King's. Um, I'll be honest, I got really tired of waiting and just went to Capital Club instead, which was much more down-to-earth, and I got to people watch. We um, did a drinking game called the Raleigh Drinking Game, where you see a rickshaw, bike riders, the R-Line, and taxi drivers. And you have to drink a sip of water each time you see those people. And I must say that made the night much more enjoyable. You've been listening to Sound Bites with Lance Newsman and Leeds McCallahan for Eye on the Triangle. Thank you very much, Lance and Leeds. That was uh, Sound Bites today. This is uh, 88.1 WKNC. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. Uh, I am Chris Chaffee. And quickly, we want to do a little bit of a community calendar, just so you don't forget about the uh, plethora of fabulous events going on this week. On Wednesday, September 8th, the Campus Farmers Market will be held in the Brickyard. Don't miss out on all the exciting products the vendors will be offering in front of DHL Library from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Also, on Saturday, September 11th, the North Carolina State University College of Veterinarian Medicine will be holding the 19th Annual Dog Olympics from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. in Moore Square. There will be demonstrations, rescue groups, canine health booths, and etc. There's a charitable event that celebrates the human bond and raises money. 
for local animal rescue groups. Canadians of all breeds, shapes, and sizes are invited to participate in an athletic and non-athletic competition such as Rollover Rover, Musical Sit, Longest Tail, Limbo, Frisbee Toss, Howling Contest, Lookalike, Wiener Toss, Best Trick, Best Beggar, and the High Jump. And finally, on Monday, September 12th, there will be the Chancellor's Forum at 3 p.m. in Thompson Hall's Titmus Theater. Faculty, staff, and students will have an opportunity to hear from Chancellor Randy Woodson when he convenes a Chancellor Forum on Monday, September 13th. The Chancellor will discuss his impressions of the first four months of the job, talk about NC State in context of the U.S. News College rankings, and set the tone for the upcoming strategic planning process. Seating is limited, so make sure to get there early. John. And of course, WKNC is sponsoring the two Hopscotch Day Parties local time on Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Hargett Street in front of Raleigh Times featuring the Flute Flies, Naps the Loner's Maple Stave Red Collar, Des Arc, and the Old Ceremony. Local beer, local band is transplanted to Friday at Tiernan Oak from 12 to 5 p.m. featuring Cellar Seas V-Lee, Filthy Bird Temperance League, and a Rooster for the Masses. We also have our own event after hours at Five Star DJs, Hennessy, Jose, Jose, Chocolate Rice, and Brooklyn Airlift will be spinning from 10.30 p.m. to 2 a.m. from Thursday night into Friday morning. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for listening and participating in tonight's program. Join us next week for Hopscotch Soundbites, a preview of SparkCon. Our Wolfpacker of the Week is Shannon Johnson from the Women's Center here at NC State. A new gardening minute with Chris Chaffee, and as always, more news and views from Evan, results from the UCF game with Tyler and Taylor, and depending on the outcome of our efforts to detect UFOs, we'll have a new segment, Hunting Aliens with Tanner. Do you have any questions, comments, suggestions? What about a story idea, a complaint, or an issue you have? Somebody that you'd like to nominate for Wolfpacker of the Week? That's what we're here for. Keep in touch with Eye on the Triangle on Twitter at WKNC EOT or WKNC 88.1. Facebook, public affairs at WKNC.org and our new voicemail feedback line. I'm going to get it right this time. 919-628-0869. We will listen to them. And a big thanks to our guests tonight, Greg Lowenhagen of Hopscotch, Chris Wimberly of Nighttown, Jessica Ruley of the National Museum local artist David McConnell and the folks who were brave enough to get interviewed by Leeds and Lance. For Chris Chaffee, Jacob Downey, Tom Anderson, Tyler Everett, Taylor Barber, Seja Hindi, Mark Herring, Lance Newsman, Lise McCallahan, and Evan Garris, who is off tonight, stifling away in his Jar Jar Binks costume at Dragon Con in Atlanta, and me, your host John Boyer. Have a great night, and join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle here on 88.1 WKNC.